Market Journal, television for agricultural business decisions, is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Thanks so much for joining us here on another episode of Market Journal. I'm Bryce Duskin. Here in eastern Nebraska, anhydrous machines and dry fertilizer spreaders have been on the move. It's an exciting time of year as row crop producers gear up for another planting season. It's also now a waiting game as we wait for those temperatures to warm up a bit. I know cattle producers, a lot of them in the midst of their spring planting season. All this to say that we know it's a hectic time of year. So we do appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule to join us on Market Journal. Coming up on this week's broadcast, we'll get a Nebraska farmer's perspective on diverse crop rotations. We'll also review what's new with this year's Testing Ag Performance Solutions competition and get a check in on the market. All of that is coming up, but first. It is no secret that when it comes to crop production in the eastern two-thirds of Nebraska, corn and soybeans reign supreme. However, one crop has been slowly gaining some traction in the state. It is hemp. Last month, our team was in, it was in Omaha at the Triumph of Ag Expo, and we had the opportunity to catch up with a representative from the Nebraska-based Hemp Consultants. The advisors at Hemp Consultants are also active cultivators who believe in this particular product and have a firm understanding of the governing regulations surrounding hemp business operations. As hemp has had a few years on the market now, we asked hemp grower and hemp consultant Colin Fury for his take on the current conditions of the hemp market in the Midwest and how Nebraska compares with some of its neighboring states. Different um, hemp commodities, different prices right now in um, Winfred, South Dakota, they are by the ton buying the hemp stem for fiber and herd um, for $200 a ton. Most producers will get about four to six tons an acre. Um, and that's when you're growing primarily for male hemp plants. I think the last in the Midwest, we've seen great growth in South Dakota in their fiber and grain and medical markets. Um, in Nebraska, we don't have any fiber processors or businesses set up, so that's been slow. In the CBD market, you see farmers gaining their comparative advantage, but fewer farmers in the game. At the same time, CBD demand's been going up. It was over $5 billion in sales in the United States last year, and that um, just keeps increasing. The price of CBD flour, according to Hemp Benchmarks last October, was $280 on average a pound, where um, this January it shot up to over 500. So um, there's fewer farmers growing, um, and right now they're, we're pushing in the legislature to extend the 15-day harvest after testing. A lot of states, like South Dakota, give you 30 to 45 days That'll go a long way in um, allowing Nebraska farmers a more even playing field when competing against farmers in these other states and in the European Union. Beyond harvesting hemp for fiber, many producers will grow the hemp for plants flour in order to make the other value-added products such as edibles, topical creams, and even CBD-infused drinks. 
When it comes to hemp production, there are a lot of acronyms to keep straight, from THC to CBD, CBDV, and so on. Colin gave us a breakdown on how some of these commodities are used. Really, we've seen a lot of growth in growing for CBDV lately. CBDV, it does the opposite. There is no high and it mitigates hunger. Um, CBG is really getting popular for cosmetic purposes and we're hoping in the new farm bill that they uh, make it easier and, and, and put regulation in place for greater cosmetics because CBG is known to rejuvenate skin cells as well as give um, the same kind of anti-inflammatory relief that CBD does. Um, CBN kind of acts like melatonin. It's good for helping people sleep. We've got CBN sleep patches. Delta-8, of course, is a kind of a twin of CBD molecularly. They're only one point different, but um, Delta-8 is got a little bit of a high feeling to it. While some of it is naturally occurring in the plant, like um, there's a variety of hemp called Pine Walker that has naturally occurring Delta-8, most of it is synthesized from CBD. Now, one thing to note, to legally grow hemp in Nebraska, you must first receive a license from the Nebraska Department of Agriculture. If you'd like to learn more about hemp consultants and the way they can help you get the ball rolling on becoming a hemp producer, you can visit them online. Their website is hempconsultants.com. Moving on to our next segment now, have you heard of the TAPS or Testing Ag Performance Solutions Program? This competition, started by the University of Nebraska, helps producers increase their efficiency as well as their profitability. The TAPS program began back in 2017 and has been expanding each year since, even outside now of Nebraska, into states like Colorado, Kansas, and Oklahoma. Our own market journal's Mike Straub talked to the program director to learn more about the TAPS program and the success they've seen. Testing Ag Performance Solutions, or TAPS, is a program that facilitates several interactive real-life farm management competitions. It's grown into an annual program that attracts hundreds of participants from several states each year. TAPS is, stands for Testing Ag Performance Solutions, and really at the core of it, we host farm management competitions, allowing producers to compete against each other in uh, central locations to be the most efficient and profitable in that competition. We actually have a number of competitions. So this year we have sprinkler irrigated corn and that's located in North Platte, Nebraska. And that is actually our longest one. So this is year number seven. We also have a subsurface drip irrigated corn, a dry land and irrigated sorghum, which is gonna be located in Grant, Nebraska. And then we have a irrigated cotton down in Oklahoma, the Panhandle in partnership with Oklahoma State University, as well as sprinkler irrigated corn in uh, just outside of Fort Collins with Colorado State University. Even if you're not participating in a competition yourself, it's a great idea to keep up to date on what some of the producers are doing and some of the decisions that must be made to become the most profitable in your operation. So there's a lot of insights that can be gained by keeping an eye on the competition. So if you are a producer and not competing, uh, there's still a lot of data and a lot of information that is shared. Uh, so please visit our website, taps.unl.edu, or follow us in our digital newsletter uh, to get a kind of an inside scoop of what people are doing and how it's comparing and playing out. And then for those that are familiar with ag production, it does give a little bit of a, uh, um, a look into some of the difficulties and challenges and all the different types of decisions that need to take place. 
and then also how our producers are being very progressive in their uh, uh, push to be efficient and profitable. I think it, since again it's an entire paradigm shift, instead of us really thinking about maximizing yield, we're really taking a step back and thinking about how do we maximize efficiency and how do we become the most profitable in our ag production. And so by doing that we really dive into um, basically leveraging the technology, the best management practices that we have, uh, the wealth of information from research and what industry has to offer as well. And so again we're I think really pushing forward in, in ag production. TAP's competitions bring together scientists, extension professionals, producers, government regulators, and industry leaders, focusing on evolving profitability and input use efficiency through real-life testing. So we're in year number seven, but what we're really doing is growing uh, quite far in terms of a lot of other locations are interested in hosting and putting up their own competition, uh, which is allowing us to really dive into what are some of the strategies that are leading to efficiency and profitability for different crops, different regions, different challenges. And so whether we think of more of a water limited environment of west central Nebraska where TAP started, or if we think about as we move east where we're dealing with maybe a little bit more water quality uh, and trying to minimize how much water um, or nutrient losses we have in those environments. And so again, it's allowing us to address local and up to even national challenges. America's farmers are constantly trying to improve the efficiency and profitability of their operations. Entering or keeping an eye on a TAPS competition can give some insight on the best strategy to do so. Thanks for that story, Mike. Darren also tells us that the expansion into Colorado this year was made possible in part by a conservation innovation grant as well as from state-level grants from the Colorado Water Conservation Board. If you'd like to learn more about the TAPS competition, you can do so by visiting their website. It's taps.unl.edu. What well, is now time to turn our attention over to the markets. Earlier this week, we had the pleasure of chatting with UNL Livestock Economist Elliot Dennis to discuss the state of the various livestock markets. Here's our conversation from Wednesday afternoon. We're going to take uh, the, today's conversation kind of three different buckets, hit on the different livestock sectors. We'll start out in the cattle markets right now. Historic prices we've seen. Tell me what you're seeing. Yeah, so really when we're talking about deferred feeder cattle contracts, we're in the 225 range. In the November, October market, that's, pre that's pretty high. Uh, even on the cash side, on the 550s, what we're seeing in Nebraska right now is well above the 240 range. There's a lot of optimism that through the summer we're going to see these prices go higher. I think probably the limiting demand on both the feeder cattle and the fed cattle side is going to be the consumer demand throughout the summer months. Really in the past two years, we've been really, you know, I would say blessed to, to have really strong consumer demand, both on the domestic side and the export side. When we look at those demand indices, what we see is that starting to soften, particularly on the export side. And so when we talk about where the, where beef demand goes, it goes to the consumer. It goes to the uh, food service, and that consumer can be either the domestic market or it can be the export market. So while the market fundamentals are there to support higher prices from the supply side, we have to be watching where that consumer side is going to be. And so if we don't start to see those prices continue to rise, it's probably some indication that we've reached some upper threshold on what consumers are willing to pay for a pound of beef. I want to ask you more about those market fundamentals you mentioned that are helping uh, build this market up for our viewers today who are not cattle producers themselves. Share with us what are the factors leading to these prices we're seeing? Yeah, so it's really fundamentally about supply. When we talk about we have meat or beef in, in, the, in the retail market, 
Well, that has to be produced, and it takes several years in the case of of, of the beef cow to, to actually get to, to retail. And so what we're seeing right now is kind of this change in supply dynamics from the animals that we have the ability to harvest and the animals that are actually available. Uh, and so we're just seeing fewer animals out there. If there's fewer animals and we have consistent demand, we, we see prices go up. Your estimation on time that we'll see this uh, market holding strong here or begin to soften perhaps? I think we, we have to have a lot of caution going into the summer months that, that these prices will soften. We tend to have pretty strong demand through summer through to the grilling season and some kind of changing supply, but I'm really concerned when we, we look at really the, the dollar and the strength of the dollar that it has right now. It really hurts exports, and so that's what I'm going to be keeping my eye on throughout the summer months is how do exports hold up. You will often share with us some different tidbits you're uh, seeing out there in these uh, different segments. Uh, on the cattle front, you, you noted beef and dairy cross, that market becoming larger. You're tracking some data there. Yeah, so we have a lot of indications of that this market is becoming uh, more appealing to the dairy producers to just try to put an Angus embryo into Holstein. And then there's a lot of consistency on the grading side, and um, we can grade them choice or, or better a lot of the times. Um, and there's also consistency in what that meat product is going to be, consistency in ribeye size, for, for example. One of the ways that we can see that is the uh, volume going through these video auctions on the beef, uh, such as like Superior or the Fed Cattle Exchange. And what we're seeing is that really since 2020 to 2021, the, the volume going through was, was pretty consistent. And, and in 2022, we saw a significant spike. When I say significant, up about 50% in total volume. So this used to be thought of as a niche market. Now it's kind of looked as an emerging market and one that I think we need to keep our eye on that can really have a significant impact. We talk about the quality of the of the beef that's brought to market, not just the quantity. Interesting nugget there. I appreciate you sharing that with us today, Elliot. Yeah. Let's transition, talk a little bit about the hog markets. Of course, the basics of markets is supply demand, create your price. What's happening right now uh, in the hog market that you're seeing? Well, oversupply of hogs. The, the quarterly hog and pigs report came out, and really that's what it was saying. We kept out kind of a, a pretty consistent breeding herd, uh, and really what that's indicated is that we, we have an oversupply of hogs. They're really uh, heavy on the front end, and when we look at what a producer is doing to adopt to those or change to those prices, what we're seeing is that farrowing intentions for this quarter and the next quarter are, are down one and a half to about 3%. And so what that ultimately means is that uh, we're gonna continue to have lower prices and that base hog price is gonna continue to, to kind of creep down towards that five-year average, the 2017 to 2021 average. Um, not Likely not gonna see the prices we saw in 2022, which means short-term profitability is, is gonna be uh, hurt. But as we start, if those farrowing tensions actually go through, which they're just intentions at this point, uh, we won't see that impact on uh, hog uh, prices and ultimately inventory until the end of this year, beginning of next year. Yeah, that's a tough market. We're going to talk more about pigs on next week's show. So yeah. I want to wrap up yeah. here uh, talking about the poultry side of things, highly pathogenic, even influenza. What are we seeing there, Elliot, in terms of are we still seeing some flocks impacted by that across the U.S.? Sure. We, we've talked about this num a number of times, and particularly last year when we really saw the ramp up. The good news was that we were starting to come down on high path cases. We were at about 370,000 birds that were impacted uh, since in the month of January. We're down about 120,000. 
uh, birds impacted as of March uh, 2023. Uh, and we've only had two cases uh, of high path in commercial uh, flocks in the last 30 days, one in South Dakota, one, one in Pennsylvania. And so that's the positive thing is we, we started to come down, although there is some worry that if we, we start to see, especially during this migratory pattern, that high path could become an issue again. But just to recap, I think we've talked about it off and on, but in Nebraska, from the inception of the outbreak to today, we have had about six commercial operations in Nebraska become affected with this, a little over six million birds that have been impacted, primarily on the laying side. Iowa has been the most uh, state that's been the most impacted. They're at a little over 13 million. And on average, we're about 55 million birds throughout the United States that have been impacted by high path since our initial inception in 2022 to date. And so ultimately what that means is it has impact upon prices, both on the broiler side and on the egg laying side. Good stuff there by Elliot. We do appreciate him joining us on the show. You heard me mention we'll talk a little bit more about hogs and pigs next week. We'll be joined by Lee Scholes of Iowa State University. If you have a question you'd like me to ask Lee, be sure to email us and I'll pass your question along. Not much puts the fear to the hearts of cattlemen more than hearing the phrase, cows are out. Monitoring and fixing fence is part of the job, but producers like Jack Keating find it cumbersome, time-consuming, and expensive. That's why Keating founded his new virtual fencing business that he calls Corral Technologies to take the pain out of fencing and gain some insights into grazing patterns along the way. You can learn more about virtual fencing and Jack's company in the April issue of the Nebraska Farmer. What well, is now time to check in on weather with Market Journal weather analyst Bill Boyer. Well, Bill, it's like Groundhog's Day as I toss it to you, saying you saw more snow out your way this week. I suppose any moisture is good moisture at this point. What are things looking like as we turn to the week ahead? Yeah, it sure does, Bryce. Uh, it seems like we're never going to get over this. Uh, we'll take the moisture any way we can get it. And unfortunately, a lot of people got a lot of snow in the northwestern part of the state of Nebraska. You can see some of these areas, uh, 18, 20 inches of snow uh, came in in some of the locations. Harrison at 20 inches officially, 18 inches in Chadron. Agate Fossil Beds, 12. Uh, the Provo area about 10. Gordon at 4 inches. Went a little further over into eastern Wyoming, some of those locations at 40 plus inches of snow. That's three feet of snow out there. We're switching gears, though. We're tired of talking about snow. We're going to talk about spring this week, and we've got our 8 to 14 day outlook into next week, a large section of the country above normal, but a decent chance of seeing some precip, too, which is maybe a win-win for all of us. Get some milder conditions out there and maybe see some precip as well. Still some of those exceptional and extreme drought conditions uh, in parts of eastern Nebraska, parts of the southwest uh, Nebraska and the southern Panhandle. This area missed out on that heavy snow, so that's not going to help uh, those areas out. But generally speaking, we do have some chances of seeing some moisture again. Let's take a look at uh, today. We're dry here, of course, across most of the region. Now into tomorrow morning, we'll see a few hit or miss showers and thunderstorms into Monday across uh, west eastern portions of the state. They'll kind of be hanging out just to our east and southeast through Monday, Tuesday, and even Wednesday. Then as we get later on into the week, uh, we'll start to see, uh, again, temperatures are going to be very mild this week, but we get late into the weekend, and we're going to start to see the possibility of some uh, showers uh, re-breaking out here across the area by Friday. 
Until then, though, it looks like it's going to primarily be mostly dry across the state and warmer temperatures. Take a look at Saturday. Here's Sunday. You see those 60s and 70s very prevalent across most of the state. Look what happens Tuesday. We build in even some more warmth. Could be up into the 80s in many locations by Wednesday and Thursday. And even on into Friday, we stay pretty mild here across the week. So it's certainly going to start feeling a lot more like spring out there. And we're not going to deal with much in the way of snow either. Some moisture, not a lot this week. It's going to be uh, generally a quieter, calmer week here across most of the middle part of the country. And I think uh, everybody can really appreciate that. And finally, as we look at snowfall, we're going to put that behind us, literally back here in the mountains of Wyoming is where we're going to keep uh, any accumulating snow this week. So hopefully we can break that Groundhog Day streak, Bryce. All right, thank you very much for that, Bill. Looking forward to some warmer days ahead. Finally, today we're taking a look back to the 2023 Eastern Nebraska Soil Health Conference held at the Eastern Nebraska Research and Extension Center, of course, that's located out near Mead. At this year's conference, a panel of Nebraska producers discussed some of their experiences with diverse crop rotations and intensification. Our very own Market Journal correspondent Mike Straub was there to get the inside scoop. During the Eastern Nebraska Soil Health Conference at NREC in February, producers got together to speak on their participation and experiences with various soil health practices. Nathan Mueller was one of the moderators and explains. Today's focus covers all of soil health, but one of those aspects is increasing crop diversity and intensification on farms in eastern Nebraska. So I've put together a panel of farmers that's going to share their perspectives on that topic um, this afternoon, and I'm really excited about all these producers I've worked with on winter wheat, uh, but they're also doing some really interesting things on their farm. And so we're gonna go through, uh, we have a great crowd here at the Soil Health Conference, uh, pretty full. And so we're gonna go through and, and just hear from those farmers and their perspective. And so you know, adding wheat has really helped them um, diversify their farm, but also mitigate risk from drought. So we've had several years of late season drought where the winter wheat's done really well in terms of yield. We're talking 90 bushel wheat, uh, but in some years we may have only had 100, 110 bushel corn. And so that really does help um, there, but a lot of producers are interested in either working with neighbors or they have livestock themselves, whether it's hogs or cattle, and leveraging that opportunity by diversifying crops to use manure in that operation, um, as well as an opportunity both to intensify. So if you're growing a small grain crop, a lot of times producers, we have the moisture here in Eastern Nebraska most years where we're gonna put a double crop soybean, double crop grain sorghum, uh, double crop sunflowers, or a forage crop if they have cattle. And so that's really what producers are looking like. And when we look at economics, uh, that adds economics to that small grain crop um, on top of what you made for wheat. And then a lot of times producers are seeing yield benefits going from a traditional corn soybean no-till to adding a third crop in that rotation. And then that preceding uh, corn and soybean is typically yielding more on average. And that's really money that you need to move back in time to your small grain rotation. So when we talk about um, economic analysis, we really need to look at a three-year window of economic analysis, not just one year at a time. One of the producers participating in the event was Kyle Reason. He tells us what he tried and some of the results regarding soil health and also gives some recommendations. We've been trying to look at uh, utilization of cover crops and wheat uh, in our um, crop rotations. Uh, one of them is uh, just a diversification uh, some of it's utilization of hog manure, um, some of it's looking back into soil health and trying to build some soil resiliency. 
Um, we try and avoid, we do no-till for the most part, uh, but where we do, we try and plant the cover crops to help maintain soils uh, and not have them erode so bad. So we've kind of used it as a, a soil health deal. Um, we're fortunate enough to be able to uh, have the resources to plant them and, and get them in on time. And uh, it's kind of just been a way to diversify, whether it be with livestock or or just as a manure play uh, for fertility and things like that, utilize the resources we have. We don't utilize livestock probably as much as we could in our area, um, but there's not a lot of livestock in our area to begin with for grazing um, opportunities. So, you know, we're trying to reach into a, a bag here and trying to integrate livestock to a cover crop. Looks great, it makes you feel good, and I believe in it myself, but I think livestock uh, really puts in a profitability factor, especially on a growing livestock uh, you're putting. Uh, uh, pounds of beef added onto an acre as opposed to putting them in a feedlot. Uh, and so I really think there's potential opportunities there and we're kind of trying to work through some of those uh, deals and uh, uh, profitability uh, projections to see if that's a good option for us. Easy one is always to get started with cereal rye or some variation of that. Um, uh, it's hard to, if you're already signing up to spend 40 bucks an acre to put it in the ground, um, I think if you utilize it and rainfall allowing or, or irrigation uh, allows uh, getting growth uh, and being able to utilize that with livestock would be a big one if you have the resources or if there's a neighbor, uh, either a young producer uh, that's looking uh, for an opportunity, maybe let him rent them out and get the profit, let him do the work. Um, but another one would be is if you have the resources to do winter wheat. Um, it's uh, when I say manage it as intensely as corn, uh, you plant it, uh, you spray it, you fertilize it, you let it grow, and if it's dry land, you wait for the rains, and then you harvest it on the 4th of July, or that, you know, that time frame. So it's, it's not much different than regular dry land corn, it's just your labor's in a different time of the year. And it, it kind of comes with their own challenges. Uh, sometimes we've had excessive growth on our rye, and we wonder how we're going to manage that. Well, uh, luckily those years we've had good uh, beans, and it comes with their own challenges of planting beans into uh, cereal rye. But, um, I think they're, uh, uh, it's a neat opportunity for people. It's great for soil health, uh, great for especially for erosion, uh, as we've seen in our group. And, and uh, I certainly recommend that for all soil health and, and especially nutrient and erosion uh, management. If you're wanting to increase soil health, diversifying crops, implementing manure, and introducing livestock grazing may be some tactics worth trying. Reporting for Market Journal, I'm Mike Straub. Thanks for covering that event, Mike. We'll have more from the 2023 Soil Health Conference in the coming weeks. However, if you'd like to get uh, some more additional details of this year's presentations, you can watch those in their entire length. We posted a link to those videos along with this segment. You can find that on the Market Journal website. And with that, we've come to the end of this week's show. If you did miss a story, be sure you're following Market Journal on YouTube and on social media to join in on that conversation. As a reminder, you can also now stream our entire weekly show on the platform that's called Acres TV. Simply search for that term, Acres TV, on Fire TV and on your Roku. We hope to see you back here next time. Until then, I'm Bryce Tuskit, wishing you a safe and productive week. Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.